Good morning, everybody. Whoa. Hello. <laughs> That's the voice of Marcus. Well, welcome to Christ Community Fellowship. Um, last week, we started the, uh, the book of Jonah, so today we're going to be doing part two of the book of Jonah. You'll have to give me a second. My mouth is pretty dry. Um, this book fascinates me for uh, a number of reasons. Uh, one is that there's a lot of um, tremendous things happening. There are runaway prophets, and there are terrible storms, and there are huge fish, and there's mass repentance, and miraculous vines and worms and so on. There's a lot to be excited about, but it's also fascinating to me, and I hope it's fascinating to you because we see the stark contrast in the hearts of people and how they either change or they don't when God is made known in their lives. But the reason I'm most excited about this book, and I discussed this last week, is because it's, it's widely known, the general story, disobedient prophet, ship at sea, storm, whale, on this, onto the dry land. But it's... it's often not taught in its entirety. So we're going to go through the whole thing and finish next week. Um, last week we got to dive in, um, and I didn't mean a pun by that, I just realized, to Jonah's initial response to God. Sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> Dad joke. Um, my kids aren't here today, so you have to bear the brunt of that, sorry. Um, a couple of key points to remember about uh, that first uh, section of Jonah, most of the first chapter we covered, um, are that God called Jonah for a purpose. That's number one, that he called him for a very, a very specific purpose. And that was to go to a city called Nineveh and to give them a warning that their wickedness had come up before God, which is a way of saying that they were basically doomed to destruction because of their awfulness, but that God, in his incredible capacity for mercy and in his longing to see people come to him, wanted them to get a warning. And we saw also how Jonah responded to that call. Nineveh was a wicked city, and Jonah wanted nothing to do with them because he felt they deserved the punishment in store for them from God. And so Jonah's plan was to get as far away from Nineveh as he could. He went on a boat to Tarshish, which is a couple thousand miles in the opposite direction, to make himself unavailable. But we learned, secondly, that God's plan won't be foiled, and that he sends a storm that results in the sailors throwing Jonah overboard as a way to be saved for the storm to stop. Now, at that point in history, Tarshish is essentially the end of the known world, and you recall that uh, those sailors who survived the storm, because of the grace and the mercy of God, would have had a testimony about him, about the power and the mercy of God that would have taken with them the rest of the way to Tarshish. And so the knowledge that the God of the Hebrews, the God of heaven who made the land of the sea, as the text says, is a merciful God who saves, ended up going much farther than Nineveh. And so God was glorified even in Jonah's disobedience toward him. That was lesson number three. We learned that God can use us even when we're trying desperately not to be useful. And the fourth thing we learned, something else about God, is that there's no escaping his plan. This is kind of 2A that he wasn't going to let Jonah off the hook so easily. Because whenever we try to influence God, we have to end up realizing it's him who influences us. That even when we're certain that we found a way to make our plan, the one that happens by, say, jumping off a ship into the stormy sea to certain death, that God may not be done with this, and it turns out not to be our plan at work after all. So we're going to pick up today in the, the last verse of the first chapter, and we're going to end in the first verse of the last chapter. And if you can track that, you're already a step ahead of me. Um, so now after Jonah has been tossed into the sea, and the sea has calmed back down, and the sailors have uh, become reverent toward the God who saved them, we arrive in verse 17 as Jonah is sinking slowly into the water. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And to this point in the story, Jonah is a complete, abject, 
objective failure in every way. God has told him to do a simple job, and he's botched it in every way you can imagine. He disobeyed, went the other way from where he was supposed to go. He was prideful instead of prayerful on the boat, and he got himself thrown overboard to avoid having to live and maybe end up doing what God had wanted him to do. So there were is poor decision after poor decision. And as a father of four kids, I get to see in real time how making poor decisions can end up with tough consequences. And you can use these. There's some that are very immediate and clear, like if, if you don't do your schoolwork, you'll have to do it when your friends come over instead of playing with them. It's a very simple consequence. And then there's stuff that is very concrete but longer term, like if you don't brush your teeth, you're gonna get cavities. Right? There's a very clear consequence for that, even though it's a ways off. And there's more abstract, long-term stuff, like if you don't learn to forgive other people, you're going to grow into a bitter old man who yells at clouds. Um, and for Jonah, his consequence was that if you don't do what God asks, you're going to end up eaten by a sea monster. That's the cause and effect for Jonah. He's a prophet. That's his job. And he refuses to do his job. And in all the jobs that I've had, I've never had a day where it goes so badly that I got eaten by a sea monster, um, which I think to Jonah probably also came as a surprise, not because... Nobody expects to be eaten by a sea monster, but because he had every expectation when he jumped off that boat or was thrown off that boat, that he was going to die. <clears throat> it's our first glimpse of Jonah's death wish that comes up again a couple times in chapter 4. And it speaks to how determined Jonah is not to do the job that God has given him. Now, I don't believe that Jonah was a disobedient prophet generally. Second Kings tells us in chapter 14 that he was a prophet who declared the word of the Lord and that the original boundaries of Israel would be restored under King Jeroboam II, and they were. Um, so Jonah's not a prophet of ill repute or somebody who's generally antagonistic, I don't think. But he is very determined in his disobedience to this particular command of God to go to Nineveh to deliver a warning. And there are some reasons for that that are really pretty logical. Um, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh is the capital, was a warfaring empire, and their interest was in domination and growth and conquest. And they were well known for the way they would punish people who rebelled against the crown. And they had been t carrying out attacks against, even down into Israel for some time at the point of Jonah's story. Um, not to mention they worshipped an entirely different god or set of gods than the Jews did, and so they were also pagans. And all those reasons contributed to Jonah's disobedience to the command of God that ends up with him swimming with the fishes. Um, and one fish in particular. And the Hebrew there for great fish references just a large sea creature. Um, it's a generic term for a creature of the sea. We can see that in other scripture in Genesis 9. In the aftermath of the great flood, God is talking to Noah and tells him and his family to repopulate the earth. And in verse 2, he says, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. And so we see the groups of creatures broken up into four distinct groups based on kind of where they live. We have land-bound animals and things that fly and things that creep and things that live in the water. God's not telling Nona that only the fish are included here. Right? This is not the whales or squid or, or deep water worms or crabs or anything. This fish is the catch-all term for marine life here. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, it uses the word katos here, which is the same one that's used uh, in Genesis 1.21 on the fifth day of creation. When God creates the great sea creatures or sea monsters, depending on your version of the Bible. And all that is to say that we don't know if this is a fish or a whale um, because the language doesn't distinguish. And so I'm going to kind of bounce between the two as I go along, so you'll have to forgive me. Um, but the broader purpose of that is to say that don't let someone use that as an excuse not to listen to the story. That just because a giant shark doesn't have a wide enough esophagus to swallow a person 
doesn't mean that Jonah wasn't swallowed by a sperm whale or something. And people will do just about anything to avoid hearing the point of a story, especially when it comes from the Bible. You notice that? The story of Jonah has a lot of good lessons for us. It talks about the sovereignty of God and his mercy and the effect of our unbelief and what happens when we make poor decisions and so on. But even though there are lots of useful lessons for anybody, some people will let themselves get hung up on the fact that there's no air inside of a whale's stomach, so how did he breathe for three days, right? Or what about all those digestive juices in the stomach? Or why would a giant fish even swallow a person because fish don't eat people and so on? And I don't know that it's especially useful to argue every one of those points because anyone using, willing to use the uh, chemical composition of the inside of a sea monster as justification for not believing the Bible is going to have a raft of other issues as well. And even if you can somehow prove the feasibility of surviving inside of a whale's stomach, and there are reports of such things happening, they're just going to move on to their next gripe about God's word. And they're going to try to discount every issue they have. It's going to be exhausting because they're going to have these logical issues, and then they're going to have emotional issues, and then they're going to have literal issues, and then they're going to have moralistic ones or social ones or political ones. And it'll go on forever, and they'll never arrive at salvation because they're not trying to get there. So I don't know that it's worth fighting all the way. And besides, the answer is right in front of us in the first place in verse 17. If we look at it, it says, God appointed a great fish. In my New King James translation, which is the one that I keep handy most of the time, it says it this way. It says, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. So the answer to the question of why did some fish swallow Jonah and how did he survive without air and you know, why didn't he get digested is right there. God prepared that fish. God prepared it. The Hebrew word for prepare there, manah, it, it shows up four times in Jonah. There's no other book of the Bible where it shows up more than in Jonah. Other ways of translating this are numbered or appointed, and it speaks to the idea that this has a purpose, this fish has a purpose, and that purpose is to swallow Jonah, and it exists at the command of God. And, you know, the forceful unbeliever will look at you and he'll say, you know, roll his eyes and say, oh, it's a magical fish. You just pull out your magic God anytime something needs to be explained in the Bible. But there's nothing magical about the fish, just the same as there's nothing magical about computers or photography or DNA. They're simply well-prepared things. They're well-worked out. This is the fish that's well-prepared by God who is infinitely wiser than I am, and also, by the way, the creator of everything, so guess which one of us gets to dictate what nature is capable of? <clears throat> it's not me. We don't know how it's possible. Was there some kind of a random air pocket inside this, this whale? Was it some kind of fish we don't know of today that was made specially for this purpose by God? Or was there a divine protection around Jonah the way there was around uh, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and the fire and Daniel? We don't know because our understanding of the world is incomplete. What we do know is that God prepared this whale. And that if anyone is going to prepare a fish or a whale, excuse me, for this purpose, it is God. Um, so he prepared this fish to swallow Jonah and be his home for three days and three nights. <clears throat> and during that time, Jonah had some time to think for himself and eventually to pray. So let's read into chapter two. And I don't want to gloss over the fact that Jesus called upon the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12 as the only sign that was going to be given that he would spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And we're going to talk about that next week. Just keep that parallel in mind. But here's chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. 
I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so finally we see Jonah do what a man of God and a prophet ought to do, which is to pray. I do wonder how long it takes him to do this. He's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This prayer takes about 45 seconds to read. Um, so I don't know if he was praying the whole time or if this was, uh, he was stubborn and sitting there in anger and frustration for two days and 23 hours before he finally came to his senses. But in any case, he does eventually. <clears throat> and he prays. And the fact that he prays from the belly of a whale underwater and that God hears him should be an encouragement to us because there's a lot less blubber in the way for us between us and God. <clears throat> From the depth of Sheol, you heard my voice, he says in verse 2. And again, the New King James is a little bit more visceral. It says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. And so there's a likening of the belly to Sheol. And there's some sense in that. It is dark. Um, it probably sounds terrifying if you think about the digestive and cardiovascular and pulmonary systems of a huge animal all around you 24 hours a day. And there's a feeling of being completely cut off from everything. Sheol is described in the Old Testament as deep within the earth, within the earth that it's arrived at by crossing over a body of water, that it's gloomy and dark. Sometimes it's described as an insatiably hungry beast, as in Isaiah 5, that enlarges its throat and opens its mouth without measure. And in the Hebrew understanding of Sheol, it's where all the dead go, and they don't really do much there. They don't move around. They don't uh, work. They don't really do anything. And so you can imagine Jonah sitting inside the belly of this animal underwater, and he doesn't know he's getting out in three days. He thinks this is probably what his eternity looks like. It kind of checks all the boxes for Sheol. So from his perspective, his plan has sort of worked. His plan being that he wanted to die. That's why he asked the sailors to throw him overboard. Uh, and so from where he's sitting, that's more or less what happened. He was taken from the earth and into what amounts to Sheol. But also... And I just want to keep this in mind that there may be something besides a literal sense here, even though the imagery is very literal. There is the possibility that Sheol, for Jonah, is his own heart, right? That Jonah's distress, he realizes, is completely self-inflicted and because of his disobedience, and that his plunge into darkness is the plunge into the sinful heart of any man, um, and that, that the real Sheol he needs rescuing from is himself and his sense of disobedience and distrust toward God. So just a thought to put there in light of all the literal imagery. He goes on with that in verse 3. So often we get explanations of things that are couched in physical or um, natural language in the Bible, but they mean something else metaphorically. But this is really kind of as close as you can get to a literal description of what happened to Jonah, to be engulfed by water with the waves overhead. And in verse 4, to be cast out of the Lord's sight. This is a term of great melancholy and great heartache and great isolation. And yet, Jonah says, he will look toward God's holy temple. Now Solomon's temple still stands at this time, and if you've read the biblical accounts of the, Solomon, the temple that Solomon built, it is outrageous in its beauty and its splendor as a kind of severe reverence for God. And Solomon dedicates that place in 1 Kings 8 and asked God several times to provide forgiveness for those who would come to the altar there in the temple or look to the temple and to repent and plead to God. 
And so Jonah's description here is of him turning back from himself and toward that holy temple, toward a focus on the Lord, toward repentance and toward forgiveness. He says, I will come back to you, Lord, and he begs mercy of him, what he thinks is probably the last time. Verse 5, he describes the physically hopeless place he's in. The water surrounds him. He feels the pressure increasing. You ever gone down to a really deep pool and the weight of the water just becomes more and more immense? Well, this is hundreds of feet deep. <clears throat> he's getting into the seaweed at the bottom of the Mediterranean, wrapped around his head, he says. He's at the roots of the mountains. He's cut off permanently from the, the world above. It's probably getting very dark. He's all but dead with nowhere to go and no way out. And he's done for. That's it. Book of Jonah over. Except that God had given Jonah a job to do, and that job wasn't done yet. In verse 6, as he kind of signs off from the world, <clears throat> when all hope is lost, there's a but. But you have brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. He chooses to look again toward God's temple, toward God, and God does save him. And I think Jonah's prayer is genuinely repentant and praiseful. His prayer is one of lament for himself, of turning himself over to God's authority, <clears throat> and of being thankful for that, for God's mercy and grace. I think he's repentant. He's also thankful, and it's weird to think that he's thankful for being eaten by a fish. Um, I can't imagine the circumstances in my own life I'd have to be in for that to be a step up, but for Jonah it certainly is. Um, so the, the, the point there, I guess, is to always give thanks, even when you're being swallowed up, because it may be better than where you're headed down to, sinking into the seaweed. Jonah finally gives him credit, as he should. In verses 7 through 9, he continues. He says, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. That's a fine way to end a prayer where you're in the belly of a fish. With the acknowledgement that despite your own efforts, uh, the past few days to get away from God's plan and to make yourself useless and to get yourself killed to avoid doing what he told you to, that despite all of that, that it isn't you who's in control. And the entire book of Jonah shows us again and again the sovereignty of God. God calls Jonah. God hurls a storm at the sea. God calms the waves. God prepares a fish. And it'll go on and on through the rest of the book. God is in control. And he's also in control of salvation. Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah says. And it is him who calls us to him. And it is his Holy Spirit which convicts our heart. And it is Jesus Christ who paid our debt. And so God in all three ways is the architect of our salvation. It is from him through and through. And that's the issue that Jonah seemed to misunderstand when he was running away from Nineveh instead of toward it. He wanted to dictate who heard about God and who could repent and who could experience his mercy. But it seems that after a few days of stewing in the digestive juices of the fish that he's starting to remember who God is as he prays. Verse 7, he says he remembered the Lord when he was fainting away. And I have to think how often we're like this. We wait until the last possible moment before we give ourselves over into the Lord's hands. We try our own ways over and over and over and over again. And only when we're at the end of our rope or at the bottom of the Mediterranean do we finally acknowledge we could use maybe a little bit of help. And I'm also reminded how merciful it is that God hears us in those moments, even though we've been ignoring him the whole way through. That our prayer enters his holy temple, that he responds. That there's a massive grace there, even though we spend so much time regarding vain idols, because what more vain idol is there than oneself? Right? He says, don't forsake faithfulness, but be in constant relationship 
and prayer. To use our voices, as verse 9 says, to, to sacrifice with a voice of thanksgiving. And it seems like a meager sacrifice, that a few words out of our mouths are the weakest thing we could possibly offer God. But out of our mouths can come the most sincere offering that we have, our prayer and need and thanksgiving and our acknowledgement that he alone is holy and good and the architect of our salvation and the only way to it. Which is why it was so moving last Sunday to be here in the evening with 20 or 25 people just singing praise and thanks and talking to each other and sharing the stories about what God has been doing and how we've seen him working, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of those we love and long for, <clears throat> to talk about his power and his goodness. And so the reminder is that even if all we have left to offer God is our voices, that we are still able to offer him something. And even when we have nothing physical left, no stuff, no energy, no time, no money, whatever it is, we still have an offering that is lovely to God, that he hears, and that is the cry out and praise and thanks for God and the acknowledgement that he is our God and Savior. God hears this. He responds, verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. You know that the fish doesn't do this of its own accord? but it's at the command of God. God had prepared this fish before it swallowed Jonah, and he commands it here to spit Jonah out. And not just spit him out into the sea as he's swimming around so he could drown again, but onto dry land. And in order for a fish big enough to swallow a person to, to vomit him out onto dry land, it would have to be basically on the beach, which is not a comfortable place for a fish, or a whale or a sea monster, whatever it is. The fish had to sacrifice for Jonah too by being uncomfortable and potentially having its life threatened. It's not easy for a big animal to get back into the water after it's beached. Most beached whales die, a couple thousand of them a year. And they die because of dehydration, they dry out, there's too much direct sun exposure, they get overheated, but mostly they die because of their sheer mass and weight. In the water, they're buoyant, right? They, they float, but on land, their bodies are so heavy that it crushes their internal organs. And so, for this fish to be up on dry land, puking Jonah out, is a pretty significant sacrifice. Last week, we talked about how those sailors who survived the storm were put in danger because of Jonah's poor decisions. Well, the fish here is too, right? That's a reminder that our sin has collateral damage to it. And yet, you know how the fish doesn't argue with God? It doesn't argue when God prepares it to swallow Jonah. It doesn't argue with him when God commands it to spit Jonah up onto the dry land. The fish, like the sea and the storm, obeys God. How nature obeys God. It does exactly what God commands of it without argument, and that's so different from how man responds to God. We like to argue, don't we? We like to disobey. We like to fight, even though it's against things that are good for us. I took a walk a few weeks ago with my kids, and a couple blocks from my house, there's a place where the road slopes down, um, but it doesn't drain well. And so there was a good-sized puddle there from the rain, and we're coming up to it, and I can hear a car coming from behind me. And so I tell my kids, get over to the side next to the fence. And one of them, and I'm not going to name names, but if you know my kids, you can probably guess which one, um, says, no. So I say, sweetheart, you need to step to the side right now. And I get this look back, and you know the look if you have kids. <laughs> and she crosses her arms, and she looks at me like, I'm going to have my way. And so I step to the side with the rest of the kids, and the car comes up, and guess what happens? Splash, right? She's soaking wet. 
And she looks at me, and she is so enraged by this that she can barely talk. And she spends the rest of the walk home complaining about how she got all wet and how I never keep her dry, and I always make her get splashed on, and she's never going to go on a walk with me ever, ever again. <clears throat> it sounds a little Jonah-y, doesn't it? How God can tell us in very simple terms what to do, what is best. And we huff and we puff for no reason other than our own pride. And yet nature has no pride. Nature is beautiful and resplendent and awe-inspiring and perfectly obedient to God's will. And it kind of makes you just want to be a tree sometimes, or a fish, I guess. Even a huge fish that has to swallow a, a prophet. Um, as I've been talking about Jonah the last few weeks as I've been studying, a few people have mentioned to me how awful it must have been for Jonah to be inside of a fish for three days. But I've been thinking, how awful was it for that fish to have a sour prophet in its gut, right? It finally gets a little relief when it spits Jonah out onto the beach. And so Jonah here, having realized his mistakes, I think, and having rededicated himself to his purpose as a prophet, sets out for Nineveh. At long last, we'll get to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Second time's a charm here. This is where most of the kids' Bibles end. I talked about this last week. The rest of them end basically at chapter 3, verse 10. Jonah did what God said, and everyone was happy. The end. But it's not the whole story of Jonah. It's only about half of it, really. And we'll see in a moment that Jonah's heart was not set right with God, especially after he sees how the Ninevites respond to the message that he gives them. And part of the problem, and maybe the whole problem, actually, is that Jonah has been given a job by God to deliver a warning, not to the Jews, not, not to the Hebrews, but to the Gentiles. And not just to any Gentiles, but to the Ninevites. God wanted the Ninevites to receive this message, which we'll get to in a moment. He wanted them to know how awful they are. And I'm sure they wouldn't have had any trouble finding people to tell them how awful they were. Um, all the folks that they killed in battle or, or skinned alive or fed the wild animals and all the other tortures they devised for their enemies, any one of those people could have and probably did tell the Ninevites just how disgusting and awful they were. And the Jews certainly felt that way. Hated them. Hated the Neo-Assyrians. They were cruel and they were pagan and they were violent. And they were encroaching on the Jews' territory. There were lots of people who could have told the Ninevites how awful they were, but God wanted them to hear it from a prophet of his. And that's a wonderful thing from God, that he wants us in sin and shame to know that what we're doing is wrong. Not because he wants to rejoice in our wrongness, but because that's the starting point to making it better. That's the beginning of the gospel, even, is to be aware that something is wrong and broken and needs to be fixed. Knowing what's wrong is the, the starting point to making it better. When I've had jobs where I've supervised other people, there's, there's no better satisfaction as, as a boss than somebody coming to you after they're hired and saying, when I work here, I want to know when I do something wrong. Because that shows that they care. They want to make it better. They want to know why it's wrong and what was right and how to, how to fix it. That's really gratifying. And in the same kind of way, sin has to be brought to light before it can be dealt with. But note also the heart that God has for people, even cruel people. That yes, he wants them to know they're terrible, but he doesn't want them to know that just so that they'll feel bad or be angry 
or so that he can feel good about his own righteousness in comparison. God's not a bully. His righteousness and goodness is not dependent only in contrast to our badness. He desires for people to be saved, for them to turn from that evil and sin and to come to him. It's the difference between standing on the street corner with a sign that says, you know, sinners are going to hell and going up to somebody and saying, you need to know about Jesus and I'd like to tell you about him. You see the difference? Pointing out someone's sin for your own entertainment or pride is not the idea. Helping someone come to grips with their own sin and find the way toward repentance, which is right there, is the point. We are supposed to be the salt of the earth, but we have to be wary not to become the salt of the sea that makes the water undrinkable. God seeks that people would repent and come to him and not just be shamed. So Jonah is sent to go tell the Ninevites how God feels about them and their sin as a warning. God sends a missionary prophet to the Gentiles. And we know in a very simple sense that the Jews are God's chosen people, that the covenant made at Sinai with Moses made them a a nation of God's choosing, that salvation was for them. But that's not the full picture of God's plan. God's plan all along has been to reach many peoples, all peoples. And his plan has been to reach them in many ways through the Jews. We can see that Clearly in the New Testament, where Jesus is a Jew, his 12 apostles are Jews, many of his early followers are Jews who get the commission to go to the ends of the earth to spread the gospel, the Messiah. But it's not just a New Testament thing. God didn't suddenly change his mind after Jesus' death and figure out that I guess Gentiles are okay. We go back to King Solomon, who was regarded as the wisest of men. And in 1 Kings 8, verse 41, this is Solomon praying to God. He says, Also, concerning the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people, Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name." Anyone who is not of Israel, if they come before God, Solomon asks that God hear their prayer. Not so that they can be rich or healthy or so that Israel can be known as a really inclusive place, but so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you. It's all for God's glory to bring people to him. Think about it. If God is glorified when a Jew loves him, how much more so when somebody who's a foreigner or a Gentile, a heathen, who is not brought up in the ways of the law and the historic traditions, comes to know God and yearns after his love and his righteousness and seeks him out. And you see it again and again, the pattern of God being glorified by Gentiles coming to worship him. In Psalms 86, verse 8, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. God is the reason for worship, not the Jews. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountains of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Many people 
Gentiles, heathens, will come because the law and the word of the Lord have gone out. When the Jews and the prophets come out to the Gentiles, they will hear and be inspired by the glory of God to go seek him out. Isaiah speaks of it not just as something that will happen, but that it's the purpose for the Jews in many respects, of the prophets especially. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 5, And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's too small a thing just to bring back Israel. And so we see that God has been planning for his salvation to go out to all nations for a very, very long time. Remember how Jonah ended his prayer in the fish's belly? That salvation is from the Lord. And the Lord has been using Jews throughout history to make his glory known to Gentiles, to heathens, to pagans, even to Ninevites. It's the early part of the work that Jesus illustrates in his parables and that the apostles take on and ramp up in the book of Acts. And God has appointed Jonah to be part of this work to deliver a specific message of warning to a heathen Gentile population. And he's very specific that Jonah should use the message that he provides and not one that Jonah comes up with himself. <clears throat> because God has a specific message and a specific heart for Gentiles. And so Jonah finally, maybe reluctantly, delivers it in verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the entirety of his message. <clears throat> the whole message that God has given Jonah to deliver here is one sentence. You compare that to the pages and pages of Jeremiah and Isaiah and so on. Jonah really is a minor prophet in that respect, isn't he? <clears throat> Nineveh is hundreds of miles from his hometown of Gath Hepfer, um, and God has sent him those hundreds of miles, which Jonah made longer by going partway to Tarshish and having to come back to say one sentence. And I'm being a little bit facetious here because I'm certain that there was more said, um, if for no other reason than that they certainly would have had questions about what he was saying to them, like, who are you, and why will this happen, and why do you smell like fish? Um, but the brevity of the message shows us that the message itself is pretty straightforward and that the book is less about the message than about who God is. <clears throat> this is a huge city that Jonah speaks into. A three days walk, it says. A big place. And Jonah's just one guy. You know, how is one guy going to give a message to such a huge city? And that's the thing about obedience to God, that when God has a plan and a purpose and a message, that he knows exactly how to get it across. And we see that in the response of the Ninevites in verses 5 through 9. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let man call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The impression here is that it's instantaneous. That Jonah gives a one-sentence prophecy 
and that the people of that city that is evil turn from that immediately to God. And so by that metric, by the number of people there and how fast that message is listened to and responded to, Jonah is maybe the most successful prophet ever, which is some great irony for him. In verse 5, they call a fast and put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is a, a coarse thing made of goat or camel hair, and you wear it like a robe or a loincloth, and it's made especially and specifically for mourning. They're showing mourning over their evil deeds, from the greatest to the least. God's message and the repentance that it requires is for the greatest to the least, and from the Jews to the Gentiles, the whole spectrum. And even the king gets in on it in verse 6. And of all of the Christ parallels that you can pick out of Jonah, this is the one that I find the most interesting that the king, the ruler, the most powerful one above all the people, steps off his throne, lays aside his robe, and condescends to take part in the rebuke of the common man. That he sits on ashes, which is another sign of mourning, to show sadness and grief. The king didn't have to do that. He was more powerful than anyone else, and he chose to humble himself and issue a decree of repentance to all the people in the city. Now, obviously, the king of Nineveh comes from a very different place than Jesus does. <clears throat> but I love that, that condescension, that stepping down, that willingness to sacrifice. sacrifice excuse me. And you'll note the, the decree in verse 7 is for everyone, animals included. Um, no eating, no drinking. In verse 8, we see that they're supposed to cover everything with sackcloth. The whole place will be in mourning. And the text calls it a three-day city. So it would take a while for the word to get out to everyone, but they get going right away. They don't waste a minute arguing or asking extra questions or wondering if it's okay for them to do this. They simply obey. They call for a fast. That's the first thing they're commanded to do. And Jonah told them their destruction was coming in 40 days. So it seems that they're willing to go through 40 days of fasting, which, of course, you know, reflects on Jesus in the wilderness when he's tempted by Satan. But this is not an amazing thing just because it... it it pre-reflects that future event, um, but because it happens so quickly, so immediately, and so completely, it recalls actually nature, that just like the sea, and just like the wind, and just like the fish, there's no argument here. There's immediate obedience. No second guessing, no, no crossing your arms while the, the car drives by through the puddle. <clears throat> this is obedience from heathens, from pagan, polytheistic, warmongering, Jew-attacking Gentiles. Their repentance is amazing. Jonah is such a good prophet. The second thing the king commands after fasting is to cover man and beast in sackcloth. And I puzzled over this for a while. You know, why cover the beasts with sackcloth? Um, it's a word that typically refers to cattle, to bulls. And it's interesting because in the Assyrian culture, uh, in, in Nineveh, bulls were held in high regard. And there have been excavations of bunches and bunches of um, huge depictions of what are called lamasu uh, from that that era and that area. Lamasu is a, a mythic figure with the head of a man and the body of a bull and wings. <clears throat> and there were huge sculptures and reliefs of these things and carvings of them in that culture. And they were especially in and around palaces and they were at the city gates because they were viewed as protectors. And so these bull-man hybrids were the, were the protectors of the people of Nineveh and the Neo-Syrian Empire. And it's interesting to me that the king would command that they be covered in sackcloth, that bulls would be covered in sackcloth because it, it shows, and maybe I'm reading into this, but it suggests to me that their repentance is so great and so sincere that they even want their highly esteemed animals who are related to their spiritual protectors, their false gods, to bow down before the God that Jonah describes to them. That's an interesting picture. And the king also says that the men ought to turn from their evil and violence, each of them. 
And that's what repentance is. We know that. Pastor Matt's taught that many times and thoroughly. That it's not just the ceasing of bad action, but the turning around, away from that action. That's what God demands of us and what he empowers us to do. And it's what these new Assyrians appear to do in Nineveh. So Jonah is really on a roll here. Um, These people are doing exactly what a prophet should want people to do when they hear his message. And they're not even sure that Jonah's God will save them anyway. If you look at verse 9, the king says, who knows if this will work? But they're willing to give it a try. They're willing to turn around for the chance of being saved. He does seem to understand how ticked off God is, and he probably got that from Jonah. I'm sure that Jonah had no trouble telling the Ninevites just how angry God was with them. It was probably the highlight of his week. Certainly better than being in a fish. And yet, even without the assurance that God's going to save them, which Jonah probably left out of his explanation, they're all in on God. Whole city. I mean, this is some amazing results for a prophet. This is like prophet of the year kind of thing. Most valuable prophet trophy situation. And God does relent. He sees what they, what they do, and he sees their hearts in Nineveh, and he relents in verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. God is so kind and merciful. Everyone's happy. Jonah did his job. God was glorified, and the Ninevites were spared. End of story, right? This is usually the end of where the kids' Bibles leave off. Because who doesn't like a happy ending? Jonah. Jonah doesn't like a happy ending. The people in Nineveh were repentant. God didn't change his mind and decide to be happy with heathens just for fun. It's the repentance of the people that God sees, and that's what we should be after, to help encourage that. It should be celebrated. In Luke 15, verse 7, Jesus speaking, he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We should be longing for that, for the joy of salvation of one person, much less a city of hundreds of thousands. And not to keep it bottled up as some kind of internal private joy for ourselves and ourselves alone, but to be proclaiming it out. As 2 Corinthians tells us in chapter 5, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We ought to be spreading the gospel as God's ambassadors, not because we are good, but because God has saved us from our badness. Ephesians 2 is, a, is a, a beautiful chapter of Scripture. I want to look at what it says in verses 1 through 8 and, and just be reminded of this. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by the grace For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's what Jonah said at the end of his prayer, right? Salvation is from the Lord. 
We don't dictate who receives it. Now, Jonah was zealous in his way. He didn't want the Ninevites to experience the grace of God. They were terrible people. They didn't deserve God's grace, he thought, and he was right. But you know who else doesn't deserve the grace of God? All of us, right? Nor do we get to dictate who receives that grace. Now, you can argue that Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, didn't know about Jesus, and so Paul's words in Ephesians don't really apply to him, but to do so would be to suggest that God's character has changed, that he has now a love and compassion for broken, godless heathens that he didn't used to have. But he's always had that. We went through those scriptures already. God has always longed for all nations to worship him. Don't think that God is satisfied only with the worship of the Jews because God deserves all worship. The Jews are not enough to glorify him. The present church is not enough to glorify him. Romans 14, 11, Philippians 2, 10, 11, Isaiah 45, 23, talk about the day that every knee will bow. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 66, 4, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. In Luke 19, Jesus is being praised, and the Pharisees tell him to make him stop. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. If our God is worthy of praise, then he is worthy of all praise. And to limit the number of people who can praise him, because we want to keep our gospel to ourselves and our selfishness, or even through negligence or fear, or the intentional unavailability that Jonah was putting on, is tantamount to treason. Because if our God is worth our worship, what makes him unworthy of our neighbor's worship? Just because our neighbor doesn't know God yet? Then we change that. We fix that. So that God would be glorified all the more. Or doesn't God deserve our neighbor's praise? Doesn't he? In heaven, there was celebration over these Ninevites, rejoicing over these wicked people who turned from their evil things and the violence that they had in their hands. And Jonah's response should be to praise God and to celebrate and to ask God where he can go next, that more people would know about God. But there's another but in this story. In chapter 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. You see, God wants more than just our actions, church. We'll get into this more deeply next week. But God wants our hearts. Because when they are right with God, we can experience a joy that is unsurpassable, that has no quantification, that can't be matched anywhere else. And we have the opportunity to share that joy that's in him and him alone not to be angry with who God wants to share it with, because salvation is from the Lord. He commands us to share a message of redemption, of restoration, of rescue. And we ought to be less like men and more like the sea, more like the wind, more like the fish, more like the repentant Ninevites even, to be obedient to that call and looking for opportunities to share the joy. And we ought to praise him so that all who are in sin would see not just their own sin, but how glorious and merciful he is to those who turn and repent and come to him. And then we get to take part in the most beautiful thing of all. We get to help lead them to the cross with joy. What a blessing that is. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity, each of us in our lives has the opportunity to make your word known, not just to point fingers at sin, Lord, but to point fingers and hearts at you, to make you known, to make the cross well known, to make it understood what it stands for and why it's important. And God, we ask that you will encourage us and make us able to do that, God, because salvation comes from you. We can't make anybody change, Lord. Only you do that. We bow down before your authority, God. We ask that you take us out of the bellies of the fish that we're in, God, that we may be put out on a dry land, and you may lead us into a city full of people who are willing and eager to hear your word and turn and repent toward you, that we may share in the joy of that, Father. You are so, so good, and we love you. Amen.